Hey, Peter, um, you might want to wrap this up, bud. You might want to steal a death card or something. Get out of here for a while. It's uh, getting a little hot. What, Neelix got that cheese thing going again? Fortunately, no, but there are literally 29th century space-time cops looking for you. Me? Why? I don't know the whole story. I was just hanging out down in the mess hall. You know, Tom had convinced everybody to try out some new 20th century bullshit fad he found. Something called Hungry Hungry Hippos. A lot of plastic and slapping. Doesn't matter. Anyway, all of a sudden, Seven of Nine comes in, but Seven of Nine was already there. Ooh, two so- sevens? I know, right? Nice. Move over, Chapman. <laughs> Got him. Uh, anyway, uh, she starts this low-energy phaser fight like she was in engineering or something. And uh, after the dust settled from that, uh, some other dudes in some weird-looking Neelix-inspired discount African king uniform showed up, said they were from the 29th century, and they needed to find you because you murdered a guy. Murdering sounds like outside of anything I would ever do because I'm Starfleet and we don't murder people. And second of all, even if I did murder somebody, why would time cops care? I, this doesn't sound like you, but you start a phaser fight in engineering and hit the warp core and it causes some kind of sort of space-time butthole to occur and uh, an inversion in the entire sector are going out 15 light years and some guy named Berlinghoff Rasmussen apparently you know, told on you. What? Yeah, I, it sounds wild. I don't know how it possibly be that you would be involved. You in sure these like are time cops and not like alternate dimension mirror universe cops? Like this seems really far-fetched, even not, for Voyager. They're not doing enough villainous sneering. They also have tricorders, but they're smaller. Well, I don't know, man. It all sounds like a bunch of uh, bullshit to me. Uh, hey, I'm going to go grab a creamsicle. You want one? Oh, you mean the creamsicles that you... You had in that cabinet over there? Yeah. I, um... I kind of ate the last four. You son of a bitch! Wait, wait, no! Peter, put put, put the phaser down! Get your tenses straight, because it's V'ger, please. A hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. And I'm your executive officer looking for an easy promotion path, Peter. I would like to jump right into talking about this episode this week, because after two weeks of what we had to endure with someone to watch over me in 1159, I was really looking forward to getting something good, and I knew this would fit the bill. What did we watch? Season 5, episode 24 relativity it's not a perfect episode there's some pretty laughable uh sort of uh mistakes and oddball moments to make it all the more interesting to talk about for you and me uh but at the same time this is also one of the better um kind of just cheesy sci-fi uh self-referential solid voyager episodes i think throughout the entire run and one i've enjoyed re-watching over the years I loved it. We got Brian yeah. Fuller. We got Nick Sagan, Mike Taylor, story by Nick Sagan, Alan Eastman directing it. I don't know who he is. Uh, Brand Bradall was pretty involved in the writing on this, and it is a great combination of rad shit, as you put it at the end of uh, 
our last episode, and I will fully agree with the term rad. It's humorous. It's it's a lighthearted episode that still does a lot of really cool stuff and some really solid world building. And for time travel, which has been a huge problem with Voyager as far as telling turkey stories <laughs> time and again, starting us off on the wrong foot, uh, I think this does some amazing things. You do realize that one of the, the time travel incidents that I referenced in this episode is time and again. No, it's timeless. Oh, it is? That's what that's what Memory Alpha says. Memory Alpha says future's end, timeless, and then the third they don't really disclose, but it could be Year of Hell uh, or Endgame, and I'm just thrilled now to know that there's time travel oh, Jesus. involved in, yeah. in Endgame, which of course there is. Uh, it wouldn't be Voyager <laughs> without it, but <laughs> that, that was kind of my question going through this whole thing is where were they during some of the, the very serious um, time travel situations, specifically timeless, specifically um, year of hell. Uh, and, you know, we can assume, I think that they were working behind the shadow or the scenes handling stuff. It, the, the, the fun part of the episode is that we get insight into what the time cop 29th century federation is doing, but they don't tell you too much, right? You just see enough. They don't over explain. And in, you know, particularly Janeway is just like, I don't understand what you're doing and I just don't want to be part of this. You know, like, uh, sounds great. Look at what I just want to go home. I don't no No, I don't want la la la. I don't want to hear you. Like, that part, that all of that is just, as I said, rad shit. It's fun. It's fun times. So it's been a while since we've had an actual episode really worth discussing. Um, and and I'd like to stick to the traditional format of us going blow by blow on the plot. But before we start, so we get introduced heavily to to the Federation Time Cop Society with the temporal prime directives and we had had a taste of this organization earlier in uh future's end which we had just talked about laughably last episode but in that it was just braxton and just a little one-man fighter pilot which um oh gosh what's his name ed bagley jr (laughs) oh yeah yeah uh evil steve jobs (laughs) ransacks and here it's a much more fleshed out view um you've made mention before that enterprise goes pretty hot and heavy on this stuff right yeah so a major plot point for the first three of the four seasons of enterprise the through line is that the events of enterprise and this isn't really a spoiler because it's literally in the pilot uh is that they're actions are part of a greater temporal cold war and uh the 29th century federation is essentially the good guys in the temporal cord cold war and they interact with what enterprise is doing to try and prevent other actors from fucking it up this isn't just a a one-off thing because part of my you know watching this and knowing how things are going to pan out and of course if there's one thing star trek is quick to do it's to take its own established canon and throw it in the fucking trash so you can do whatever one-off episode you want to do this season but 
you know, my my feeling kind of going through all the stuff with Braxton, what we've seen here is like it's it's very possible that none of this stuff, the temporal federation ever even comes to exist because it just takes a couple key actions at the right time to radically alter a timeline. And, you know, these situations are easy enough to kind of just hand wave away and say, well, maybe they're encountering them now. And maybe by the end of Voyage or something else will happen that none of these guys will ever come to be in the first place. That is not the case. The 29th Century Time Cop Federation continues into the next show. It's definitely a thing that they decide that they want to go back to. This is the the fun one, though, and it's, I think, the fun one because you get so much cool just background shit. Like the, the, the teaser, right? The pre-credits sequence is Voyager at Utopia Planitia, and this is the first time ever in Trek you actually get to see Utopia Planitia. Fucking amazing. And I played the game where I paused it as soon as I saw the first thing, and I was like, if that's not the upper primary hull of a galaxy class starship, then I don't know what it is. This is such a standout episode as they pan over a galaxy class being built. You see an Excelsior in dry dock. You see a Nebula. You see an Akira rolling fresh off the line. Like this is major shit. There's galaxy classes being constructed all over the place. And it's just an awesome scene that is so above and beyond a majority of the special effects in composition and quality that it it just it sticks out like a sore thumb. And did you read the memory alpha fully on this? I did for this specific part because I thought that shot was so cool. And I was like, there's got to be some background to this. And I was I was not at all surprised that this was the work of like a hardcore Trek nerd who really just wanted to flush the scene out super hard up to and including that the shot of Mars in the background is apparently the Utopia Planitia crater. Thus not, giving it its name, not a the work of a nerd of nerds. These guys who did the shot were doing this on their own personal time off budget. And not only the regular, you know, Voyager uh, special effects people that were contracted, like other people from the design company were putting in time to make this as badass as it was like. This is like a fan, a fandom labor of love. And it shows uh, and it's and it's all for probably five seconds, but it's a great five seconds. Uh, it was about five minutes with the way I was stopping, rewinding, <laughs> stopping, rewinding. Like I felt like, of joy. Yeah. I felt like it was um, under siege where the Playboy model pops out of the cake naked. And like, I just rewound it and watched it a million times as a child. And, and that's that's what I was doing here. If, if this was the VHS, <laughs> that part of the tape would be forever warped right now. And you don't know what's going on exactly until you see that shot of Voyager. And you realize that this is not the current day. This is five years prior. And this is Voyager about to launch out. And I what I love the most about this episode, and again, for a jokey kind of a fun action episode is they lay so much cool background down and you never get to see Voyager with new crew members. You never get to see other big names just because of the distance they are. It's a static environment, right? So seeing an admiral on deck, seeing Janeway beam over for the first time and him give her a hard time, seeing Janeway with her old season one hairdo, which looks fucking terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's just a wig, right? Like, 
I mean, I I'm I'm sure it was a combo of a wig plus her own hair in the original, uh, you know, season one. Now it's a straight up wig and it's very noticeable. <laughs> it is terrible. But she beams on and kind of like that was the neat part for me in um, all good things was seeing what was it like when Picard actually first stepped foot on the Enterprise and what was the reaction to seeing the ship for the first time? And it's just really, really cool world building. And I think they do a great job having fun doing it, but really, really establishing it well in the process. The Admiral, which we uh, just mentioned that greets her, is Admiral Patterson, who has been supervising the construction of Voyager. And he is, in fact, Janeway's old, I don't know, space algebra teacher or something from the academy. <laughs> yes some kind of space science teacher from back in the academy days uh but uh he he is very uh warm and personal with uh with janeway in a sort of very fatherly way this guy's and- uh dakin matthews who's a total that guy i recognize him strongly from true grip but like anytime you need like a a soft-spoken southern scholar Dakin's your guy, and I think he fills this role nicely. This episode's got a lot of that guy energy going for it. Boy, howdy. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to that. But uh, the you know the, the, the teaser kind of plays it straight up until the very end. It's, you know, Catherine Janeway getting her first tour of her command. Uh, Admiral Patterson's kind of taking him through the basics. You know, she gets to go to the bridge. She checks out her ready room. She comes back to the bridge. And she wants to uh, take a look at the helm, asks an ensign in a blue uniform uh, to to step aside for a second. And she does and turns the camera and we see it is a completely normal looking like ensign looking human in a Starfleet uniform. Seven of nine. Wow. Wow. Who would have ever thought that they would live to see the day that Jerry Ryan is not in a skin tight cat suit. I've been waiting for this so long, asking so many times, when are we going to see her? When when are they going to finally put her in a Starfleet uniform? Um, and here you got it, Joe. The proof is in the pudding. Plain as day on screen. If Jerry Ryan can't make one of these goddamn DS9 <laughs> Voyager uniforms look good. That's the word of God right there. These are ugly uniforms, and even supermodel Barbie can't look respectable in it. (laughs) I thought she looked sharp in it, man. They obviously fitted her into a jumpsuit. Like, they did not give her a jabroni suit. okay in it, but it still did not look okay on her. They're bad uniforms. Fair point. Fair point. Um, So it's our first indication that something is obviously up uh, with what's going on here. And, uh, you know, she's got some kind of future tech looking device in her hand when we when we super quarter. Yeah. And she's on she's in the briefing room when Janeway comes in and is kind of bitching that that Starfleet briefing rooms always kind of suck. <laughs> and asks like ask seven of nine, like, hey, do you think this sucks? And she's like, uh, uh, it's fine. You know, when they first showed her, I, I want to say real quick, because planting her back in time actually kind of surprised me i figured like you were saying this was just going to be a straight cold open we were going to see some fundamental flaw in the ship's kind of creation or whatever when they showed her from the back and it was just a super blonde lady in a uh, science division outfit i at first thought it was uh 
Jerry Ryan's stunt double who they killed in the space elf pharmaceutical testing episode. Right. That right. was actually the secret section 31 plant. So having her in there was, was kind of like just got me, uh, knocked me off, you know, caught me flat footed. And then, yeah, they, they roll in, they start kind of ribbing the briefing room. I noticed there's some ugly ass artwork that we had commented on seasons ago that is suspiciously absent. So, you know, they put a solid effort in, but there's, they didn't say super duper true to what the original uh, season one looked like. Yeah, they were going to they they would go ahead and put a slap of bad wig on Kate Mulgrew. They're not going to redo their entire set just for those details. And speaking of looking rough, Joe Carey. So for the, we have now this is the first time that Joe Carey has been on the screen in four years. <laughs> Like the last time we saw him in real, it was season one, bro. It was that episode where I think they're on some planet where he's like trying to find roots to eat, and then like uh, Snarf Snarf tells him that he'll like shit his brains out if he eats them. Points at his dick too, right? Yeah, like it's just yeah, his dick will fall off or something. Like it was awful. State of flux. That was a state of flux. State of flux. That that's. That's the episode where there's a replicator incident and the Kazon get melted into the bulkhead. Oh, yeah. That's the one where uh, Seska actually like finally Bounces like out goes rogue completely. Oh, man. Seska, Queen of Burns, how I've missed her. So that was God, like episode have... 10 of the whole show. Yeah. We're in episode uh, 116. <laughs> and here's Joe Carey. What the fuck? <laughs> Reaching hey, the Joe, back what have you been up to? Uh, or whatever his real name is. But like, hey, man, what have you been up to? Nothing. Well, we need you. We got you on the casting call. For, what? What do you mean the casting call? Well, yeah, man, you signed that contract. You still got to come in and act. I, I haven't been on that show in four years. Well, tough shit, man. You got to come back in. And, and what gets me is that he's here to what? Hit on seven of nine. Like that seems to be it. He's super this is a married heavy. man, by the way. Shame yeah. on you, Joe Carey. Yes, yes. <laughs> you will not you. take no for an answer. It's you want to catch uh, food with me at the mess hall. No, I'm not part of this ship's compliment. I'm on that starbase. Okay, well, I'm going to come by the starbase and say hi. Like, down boy, Jesus, like <laughs> going for it, Joe Carey. Yeah, go go hang out with your boys, man. Like. Get that family time in while you can, because I got bad news for you. <laughs> uh, so Seven of Nine uh, manages to excuse herself from Joe Carey uh, uh, hitting on her. Still and wearing super high heels. Only crew member. Even even with the Starfleet uniform, she's still got her Borg hooker boots. And uh, I'm not complaining, but I'm <laughs> just just putting observing. it out. Just observing. Maybe that's Respect. what drew Joe to her. Joe's got a boot thing too when he's like hey <laughs> you share a fetish with joe carey yeah so you want to tell the world i uh i notice you're not wearing the federation issue spray painted black uh, air jordans what are you doing later tonight seven of nine enters into a jeffrey's tube and uh she is talking to somebody about some kind of weapon that she is finding and what we find out is that she is corresponding with what appears to be a uh, 
very more futuristic looking starship that looks vaguely like it's probably Federation, but definitely not what we understand to be Federation. I thought it looked more like uh, I actually had a G.I. Joe playset when I was little. It was a stealth bomber, but it it looked like the ship. The ship looks kind of like space dinosaur to me, if anything. It does share. Well, the space dinosaurs, I think, was a little bit more metal tubey. This has got that Holiday Inn carpeting of of starship oh, construction on the inside. Yeah, I'm talking about the outside. Yeah, the outside is a little bit more like that, but it also has like the the blue highlights that always kind of scream Federation, right? Like it has the there's a certain sort of design aesthetic that it's different because it's kind of more sleek. It's not real circular, uh, but I still think it kind of tags back as like Federation esque. That bridge you're talking about, I couldn't believe that that is a redressed Enterprise E movie set. But yeah, I managed to make that look so much worse. Yes, terrible. Speaking <laughs> like, of terrible, future 29th century Federation uniforms still look terrible. And it, apparently, they found some of Neelix's old design docs. <laughs> I'm just straight up, like the patterns on it and everything it looks like american gladiator outfits almost or like uh running man uh, i don't know the, the quilted sleeve so so seven of nine has been kind of found out because she locked the jeffrey's tube behind her so janeway and patterson get interested in what's going on uh try and um find their way to her she finds out oh uh i'm about to get found out get me out of here and uh, the officers who have not been identified yet on the ship, uh, the the uh, they say, well, if we try to get her out now, she she might you know die. Uh, but they try to do it anyway before she gets discovered by Janeway. And they they tr- they time transport her, and uh, when she materializes, in fact, she's dead. Um, Janeway notices uh, this is and this part is important: a chroniton flux of point zero zero three. Mm-hmm. Very specific, very specific recurring element. Um, so the the first part of the episode ends with like she's dead. Jim as a a beautiful in death seven of nine lays upon the transporter pad, apparently of having a time aneurysm. We get to see the crew of what we'll find out is the USS Relativity. You've got uh, commander doesn't matter. And then you have captain that guy. This is both very exciting and also a huge miss because the captain is Braxton and we have gotten two scoops of Braxton already in Futures End Part 1 and 2. You and I have uh, dubbed him Captain Caveman because he has a very pronounced uh, bridge line or uh, eyebrow ridge. Mm -hmm. And that is totally not this guy at all because they have recast this to Bruce McGill, who is one of the top that guys. He is the most that guy of that guys. Like, he is someone you have seen in things. If you don't know you haven't seen him in things, we have a we have a demo reel to show you. He is in all the things. Most fittingly is actually Time Cop. Yes! <laughs> He's John Claude Van Damme's uh, Time Cop boss chief time cop yes he is the hard-bitten time cop captain in that as well 
I'm sitting there and as soon as I see him, I'm like, God, I've seen this guy in so many different things. And I'm really trying to place him. And of course, I knew him from Time Cop. But uh, the the one that's really the big standout for me, and I want to jump back to hope and fear. Arturus, Ray Wise, we made a big deal out of Ray Wise when they got him. And I think it was that episode I discussed a little gem that I had come across called FDR American Badass. Yes, which, which I looked, looked up afterwards, by the way, looked really cool in the previews. And I watched about 15 minutes of it. and It was just absurd and fun. And then I tried to watch the whole thing. Joe, I'm officially rescinding my endorsement of uh, FDR American Badass. Oh, no, <laughs> it's oh boy, it real bad in some some real awful ways. And unfortunately, Bruce McGill, our time cop, is like a major player in that. He plays a guy named Lewis. And that's it's like the whole time he's talking, that's all I'm seeing is him like chastising FDR for taking his dick out. And like, (laughs) you mean to tell me that both Ray Wise and Bruce McGill were in that same fucking terrible movie? What a fucking curse. What Uh, a curse. It it must have been a rough, a rough year for that guy's. The that guy economy was was in a recession. Yeah, 2012 mistakes were made, Joe. What 2012 really? Bruce McGill was in Lincoln that year. He was like <laughs> one of the best movies that year. It, <laughs> so 2012 was the year Bruce McGill played Edward Stanton in Lincoln, a Academy Award-winning film that was so good the lead actor decided he was never going to act ever again because he can't top it. And FDR, American badass. <laughs> Someone blackmailed him. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> that's, that, that's the fucking revelation of the night. That's great. Maybe Ray Wise called in a boon and was like, listen, <laughs> listen, buddy, you don't have a fucking choice. Yeah, we we you and I go way back to season four, season five Voyager. Anyways, um, you know, they, they changed the actor. And I don't remember what the original Captain Caveman, Captain Braxton was, but it was just it. It was such a miss. Like. Why? Why change who this guy is? I don't know. Maybe the original guy died. Who knows? I'm not willing to put that much research in. Uh, but yeah, you get two pretty good guest actors between him and um, Dak and Matthews. Like, and that's that's fun. And they're just regular old humans without you know a bunch of ball sacky makeup on them, and they really get to ham it up. Um, but uh, Bruce McGill's really reeled in tight there, and even to the point where it doesn't even feel at all. It doesn't look like the old Captain Braxton, and it doesn't. Uh, sound like him. It doesn't feel like him. Doesn't look like him. It's just it's a completely different character. But he is all full of throwbacks to Future Zen part one and two. And he'll go on later in the episode to cry about how he got stranded in the 90s and how bad it was. And oh, God, the horror. And he had to go off to like reprogramming boot camp, whatever the hell's going on there. He had had to go through therapy, basically. He had to to be D. Uh, D nine defied before they let him back in charge of another uh, Federation time ship. Yeah. Which also seems like he got a pretty big promotion too. Cause before he's just like in the solo flyer and now he's in control of a entire, um, you know, whatever class ship the relativity is. It seems like it's a, a pretty big deal. 
Uh, and he's real cold on what's going on here. He's got a job to do. He doesn't care that seven of nine is getting mangled in the process. And apparently you only get to make three magic time travel wishes before you start running into the situation where additional time jumps, quantum leaps might kill you. And he's like, oh, well, hopefully third time's going to be a charm laying a course. Let's go back in time and snag seven and nine again, because the parameters of their mission, they have decided that grabbing a native out of the timeline they're trying to affect to do their dirty, not their dirty work, but to do the, the boots on the ground work is more efficient than taking one of their own people and planting them into the situation. Oh, I mean, in addition, they make note of the fact that because of seven of nines Borg integrated hardware, she apparently has the capacity to natively sense the the time bomb, which will ultimately be the MacGuffin. So there is a technical issue. It, I, suggestion two is to it's enough. Uh, I buy it. Yeah, I w- I do want to take a second to kind of unpack some of the time travel stuff that you 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 just kind of explained. The first is Braxton himself, who says he essentially remembers being stuck in the nineties, even though. There was a suggestion at the end of Future's End Part 2 that he never experienced that timeline. Not a suggestion. I mean, they they flat out say that. But what this episode sets up but never actually says specifically is that because of time, the nature of time paradoxes, that when, when they reintegrate people uh, into their time – into uh, the correct timeline, they end up experiencing those things. So – Though the version of Braxton that they encountered at the end of Futures in Part 2 had never experienced that timeline, there was still a version of Braxton stuck in the 90s because he was still there because all of that still happened. It just was the disaster at the end didn't happen, right? You know, one of the biggest complaints I and you have made about time travel, not just in Star Trek, but anywhere, is it's... It's fucking stupid. It's full of plot holes and it's so easy to kind of trip on itself on its own bullshit that it takes you out of it. I think that this episode, much like uh, Year of Hell, does a great job of just skimming past and putting enough information out there that you can say, well, maybe there's a, a legit reason why it is, but they're not trying to sit down and and nail down every inch of the science behind it and in the process make it seem ridiculous. Yeah, the 29th century people take the piss out of time travel. Like they're they're the ones who are kind of like flippant about it in a way that kind of sells the whole thing. But when Braxton says like the bomb, you know, has been and will be placed here, and he's just like I, I don't keep my tenses straight anymore. It's stupid. <laughs> right? Like who and they like have the whole briefing moment where they're like trying to teach time paradoxes to 7 of 9. Just to mm-hmm. show like this shit is all kind of fucked up and never makes sense. And the episode's acknowledging that. So does it make sense on the surface that Braxton did and did not experience those things? No. But at the same time, the show's saying, yeah, it doesn't make sense, but it still happened because time travel fucks everything up. And that's what's cool about it is they 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 tell you that. And so you can be like, OK, cool. As long as as long as you're saying that's the case, I can buy that's the case, you know? Yep. Absolutely. I like the idea that going back into 
like into time has some sort of consequence for you physiologically so you can't keep fucking with time like there's a limited window of how you can fix it they keep recruiting seven of nine and but they're like okay so we only have so many chances to do this because of that and it's implied because she keeps going back in her own time frame that that's a limiting factor and the more you do it the more likely it is that you're going to come down with this case of space badness yeah like Great. That's great because that provides a frame for why you can't just do this over and over and over and over again until you succeed, right? It like creates stakes it and does. puts a sense of urgency that a single episode needs, whereas the uh, Krenum time vessel, uh, as Space Boddicker laid out, said we can do this as many times as we want until we get it right because we're not getting old. And, and that was kind of like the the horror of that episode and this one you know it keeps its levity i think uh, and tells a different kind of of time travel so uh you know they're like you said they're real flipping about it guys like oh yeah you know i i always forget that you asked this question and they're playing they're like oh we're old chums and you know i've got history with you but this is the first time you're meeting me and the kind of lording it over her uh, I appreciate that seven of nine doesn't really put up any resistance. She's like, that's a cool thing about her character. She's so um, she's so business all the time that even in a kind of a muddy situation, she'll see what is the the ultimate truth. What are the ends and can she justify them with the means and just push forward on it? I agree. Uh, so before they actually go get Seven of Nine, they set up the the, the issue on Voyager in pretty quick succession. Uh, the the it's a normal sort of day on Voyager because, of course, uh, you know Tom Paris is going to get everyone to do some bullshit from the twentieth century. In this case, ping pong. Um, Seven of Nine is having some 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 issues with her her ocular implant that the doctor fixes, and ultimately you think. They cut to the ping pong tournament, the big ping pong tournament in the in the mess hall. And uh, it's Seven and Tom versus Harry and Bellana. What uh, happened there? <laughs> what kind of cuckolding is afoot here that you've got Tom having to go to seven and and basically try to like reverse psychology her into that? The only reason that Seven of Nine is there is because uh Tom's goading her with this rivalry she has with Balana. And I would totally be like, no fucking way we're letting the Borg in here with her perfect hand eye coordination. Like it's cheating. You're using a stroke box. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> they need to... hacks. This is hacks. Yeah, like Neelix needs to have a copy of Punk Buster and start <laughs> I, it makes sense because Bolana and, and Harry are old friends, like from the first episode. So, like, they decide yeah. they want to do this and hang out. Like, you but know, it's Tom's, it's Tom's gimmick. It's Tom's tournament. His girlfriend and his best friend decided that they are going to pair together for doubles and oust him. Like, there's, there's a story to be told here as to how this happened. And if it wasn't such an action-packed, fun adventure, otherwise. I'd argue it. They should have made it a bigger point, but uh, yeah, there's Tom and Seven on one side, uh, Balan and Harry on the other, and there's a pretty cool moment where like they get a good exchange. Tom goes to spike the ball, and it just hangs in the air, and everybody's like, "Whoa!" And I'm like, "This, this is totally 
a Starfleet moment. Like we're just hanging out, having fun. And then like the space horror starts to unfold. And now what was just having fun in R&R has turned into like a work red alert. So they do some investigating. There's a quick scene in Astrometrics where there's apparently temporal fissures opening across the ship and it's going to eventually rip the ship apart unless they're able to get to the bottom as to uh, why this is happening. And there's even a quick scene where the doctor gets a call that someone's ill and then goes to sickbay before the person gets ill because time is flowing at different speeds in different parts of the ship. Fucking cool. That was such a cool scene. It was such a simple scene. And again, the the horrors of space. I I loved it. And that's a great like kind of event horizon. E. Oh, what the fuck's going on here moment? I want to point out here. They go close up as the doctor's leaving sickbay to go to the mess hall and deal with uh, whoever's space sickness up there. The camera pans down, specifically focusing on focusing on his hollow emitter, which is what? Stolen 29th century hyper technology. And make you think that it's going to be about that. And then it's not as because <laughs> I've we've talked about this like 15 times now. There's just this amazing piece of technology floating about. And here you've got a whole episode of a Federation 29th century Captain Braxton specifically, who's got an axe to grind with Voyager and knows all about the stuff, just turning this blind eye to the doctor's hollow matter because, <coughs> you know, we're not going to stick Bob Picardo back in sickbay forever. So, but it was just crazy. He's too they, good an actor to keep in sickbay. But yeah, they tease you super hard with that pan in shot that yeah. seems to exist for no other reason than to make <laughs> you think about it. Like, no other. As much good special effects is in this episode, the the scene with uh, Chakotay talking to the captain and she's like, I've got some idea about some, you know, some super duper force fields. And then he kind of falls out of phase with himself. And like, I don't know, the only way I can describe the effect they use on him is like when you win solitaire and like all the cards go shooting off and he's like trailing himself. Yeah, yeah. Not their best moment. In any case, the action on Voyager actually wraps up really quick after that. I mean, literally, they get the red alert that the ship's about to break apart, and then it breaks apart. The XO of relativity uh, shows up with another uh, 29th century time cop and grabs Seven of Nine, and that's when they winds up back on the on relativity, and the, she gets the down low of what's going on with Braxton. So, if if this wasn't such an awesome episode, I'd really nitpick it, but. The fucking bomb, you know, the big thing that happens here is like it's the stupidest concept ever. Like if you are going to try to blow up a Voyager, why using some slow release time bomb? Like you could have just thrown a grenade at the warp core. And well, so they 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 start to talk about it in one line of dialogue, but don't pay off how that device was going to do do that. But what Braxton. So, okay, here it is. Here's the sound effect. I'm going to put it in right here. Okay, the bad guy is Braxton, but it's a future version of Braxton. Okay, and the future version of Braxton wants to erase Voyager from time and space because his rationale is that his life won't be ruined if Voyager never existed because his life got ruined by being stuck in the 20th century for 30 years. Legit complaint. Legit. So 
Braxton is trying to erase Voyager from history, and this and it, apparently what the bomb is supposed to do. But that is the only time that that's like that connection is made in the story, and it's kind of the only part that that falls on its face, right? Like because if they do blow it up, then they wouldn't be trying to save it because it would have never existed in the first place. And there could be like some kind of techno babble thing of you know, oh, so the effect takes time and like we have temporal shielding so that we can still oh, perceive got the, the timeline. Chinese knockoff that doesn't right. work as good as the regular, you know. So we OEM still have version. a certain amount of time to try and fix this before the effect becomes permanent. Like it, it we're talking maybe 20 seconds of dialogue to clean this up so that you can buy it because they've set sure. up everything else well enough, but they just kind of didn't. They kind of missed that little detail. But whatever, right? Like the rest of the episode is good enough that I can be like, oh, that's what they meant to do. That's fine. Absolutely. <laughs> like, I get it. That's fine. But uh, Braxton explains that the issue was happening at a time. So they're trying to figure out when the saboteur put the temporal bomb on Voyager. And they had narrowed it down to a period two years prior to when Seven of Nine joined, uh, which would have put him in season two. Uh, which is when they are being under the attack by the Kazon. You know, the Kmart Klingons and are good enough to be Borg. <laughs> Dude, line of the show right there. The Kazon are an inferior species. <laughs> We've established that quite, you know, quite deeply, a bit. Yes. Deeply entrenched Borg racism towards the Kazon. There the only some... two times that they have been mentioned since the Kazon have been on the show have been by 7F9 talking about how much they suck. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to go on record as saying by the end, I think the Kazon actually had turned into a pretty legitimate uh, Delta Quadrant species. And, and, you know, again, that's that's the ongoing shame of Voyagers that all of the efforts to make cool new shit they give up on right as it's becoming cool. Let's talk about that for a second. There is a through line of Delta Quadrant races and antagonists that they had that they sort of captured but never quite explicitly brought to the forefront then the Kazon and kind of are a perfect manifestation of it and that is that the delta quadrant is the wild west and it isn't that you've got some kind of sector spanning military force or you know a heavy major superpower in this part of space it's not like there's a dominion or a federation or romulan empire or the klingons it's little fiefdoms little principalities and then this awful borg uh you know threat that's lurking out there sort of preying on the fact that there isn't organized resistance to them and so you, you feel like you're in the dirty trailer trash part of the galaxy and and really, you know, the story they never tell or the, the connection they never make is that anything that would have been a credible threat to the Borg was already assimilated. And it's could be argued because the Borg is out there knocking around like that's why the Delta Quadrant is such shambles is that the best, the brightest, the, the most organized, whatever has already been victimized. And now you've got the trash inheriting the Quadrant and you've or- got some. Or they're just like already collapsed before the Borg got to them, like they're Herogen, or we're yeah. never interested, like the uh, Skivians, or you know, so on and so forth, or just like are too busy being pla- Captain Planet villains, like the Malon. Like, 
getting me so mad on. again, Joe. Be careful. <laughs> so on and so forth. So yeah, the in retrospect, the Kazon were a really cool idea of okay, so we want to make them somewhat Klingon-esque and that they're really, you know, fighty focused, but we don't want to redo the Klingon. So instead of being, you know, death metal warrior space samurai, they're they're essentially rednecks in space yeah. hoopties who are not like a threat in the same way and are kind of like dirty and, and awful and not at all like what we're used to because this is a lawless part of space. And then you bring in the trip. What what really was good about the Kazon, and I don't know if it was intentional, but you didn't get the important part of their story up front. And it wasn't until initiations where they really start fleshing out stuff with the Trabe and and exploring that you're like, okay, I I get what these guys are about. I'm starting to feel it. And of course, again, by the time they discard Seska, they kind of close the book on them as well. And it's just wasted potential, which is the story of Voyager. But yeah, uh, Seven lays down the law and says, no, the Kazon are stupid rednecks and they're incapable of planting time <laughs> bombs on us. You must be mistaken. So they correct to say, we don't think the Kazon did it. We just think that whoever put it there took advantage of the chaos Voyager was suffering at the time to sneak onto the ship, put the time bomb on and sneak off. They they go through some training of seven of nine. She learns about uh, different types of time paradoxes. One that specifically mentions first contact, i.e. the board go back in time to stop first contact, but end up, you know, facilitating first contact. And uh, they do a simulation of where the bomb is with Braxton, where he his hatred of Janeway is 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 expressed explicitly so that the big reveal later when he's the villain is not really a reveal at all. Um, I'm still laughing that they're like, well, you know, again, seven of nine, you've got this ocular implant, which kind of helps out and you know how the ship's laid out. And we think you'll be the least disruptive to the crew. And they beam her back in time again during the middle of this, uh, one of these Kazon battles. And it's like, yeah, because like the crazy hot blonde that nobody has ever seen before on the ship of 140 people like that's that's not going to stick out like a sore thumb. There's some fun action in the hallways as, uh, you know, Seven's kind of ducking and avoiding Janeway roaming around. And, you know, they'll play on that exact moment towards the end of the episode in kind of this uh, Back to the Future one, Back to the Future two. 50s rock concert where Janeway's trying to duck herself, which I thought was fun. And she ends up going back into the same Jeffrey's tube where she had been at earlier because now the bomb is accessible. And we will end up with a situation where they detect the presence of uh, some nonsense. Janeway picks up that 0.003 chromaton. Uh, signature again, which is a throwback to when Voyager was in dry dock. They lock the whole area down with force fields and she and Tuvok end up with seven and nine at gunpoint or like, all right, spill the beans. Yeah. So she does. Uh, it's, a, I probably, it was a better scene than I remembered, you know, like it's, it's very well done where she's trying not to explain who she is. She's trying not to break the temporal time prime directive. Janeway gives no fucks about nothing. Uh, no prime directives will hold her back and eventually <laughs> eventually makes seven of nine basically tell her otherwise 
you know, she wasn't going to let her out of the little cage that she put her in. And it's actually effectively done by Jerry Ryan in trying to explain like, yeah, okay, I'm a Borg and that's freaking you out right now. And I get it. That was so good when they're like, there's nano machinery in her. She's a Borg and Janeway looks like she just, (laughs) she looks like she just hits them with a car. Like, whoa, what a Borg? What? Like the preposterousness of seven of nine as a character, I think really bleeds through in all the right ways here. And then it pays off cool in, in a cool way. You know, it pays off in a cool way because she's able to convince her by saying, when you take me from the Borg, this is a speech you're going to give me. And she, you can see her recognition and hearing her voice through her of like, yeah, that's some shit I would say. Like, you would have to know me to know that that's the shit I would say. I now believe that you say you're from the future. <laughs> like, And the whole time you've got Brax and, and it's kind of like this FBI mafia mole listening on the wiretap thing like all right don't tell him you're a cop don't tell him you're a cop and then back in the the white unmarked van out in the street like yeah i'm a cop and it was like like (laughs) him wincing as she does all this stuff because at first she's like you know keeping keeping the party line going he's like yeah good you're doing a great job yeah actually i'm from the future wait wait no so, yeah, Janeway uh, drops the fields and lets Seven of Nine go on the uh, olive branch of trust. And Seven gets deeper in the ship. And we see, as you have already spoiled, that the bad guy is, in fact, a future, future version of Captain Braxton. How cool would it have been if at this moment when they reveal evil Braxton, if they actually had the original actor? of Braxton, <laughs> like That's what they were saving him for bullshit timelines whatever like this guy is also braxton and he's got the real axe to grind and then and and that there's a split personality running here but we find out beyond the shadow of a doubt that these clunky ass 29th century phasers are complete trash yeah so i don't know what happened between future's end when it could vaporize a car Yes. And this episode where Seven of Nine stumbles in to the as we alluded to in our intro, Seven of Nine stumbles in to the mess hall while the ping pong tournament is happening and manages to hit Braxton twice with the super future phaser, but it doesn't seem to do anything but mildly inconvenience him. Like what this this literally incinerated a ram truck. Like it just vanished into the ether. Where where like is that? Get rid of seven and nine. She doesn't know what she's doing. You need that corporate lackey from Future's End, uh, Ed Bagley Jr.'s goon. That guy knew his way around a space phaser. Uh, Also, I get that that Bruce McGill isn't the most physical of guys, but when seven of nine with the best hand-eye coordination in the world takes her first shot, like he just kind of moves his neck and like dodges the fire. It's there. There's some very top shelf unintentional physical humor in this episode but yeah man she like bullseyes his ass twice and as if the ping pong game could not have gotten any weirder like this is this is the right way to like star trek one up yourself from the ping pong ball being suspended in air to uh an alternate version of you minus your borg implants and in a starfleet uniform busting in and shooting at some other rando before collapsing over and dying again 
and in her dying breath saying like, yeah, hunt this guy down before he plants a bomb. Like this is some, some great escalation. The after effect of all of this is that seven of nine cannot continue with her time cop oriented duties and they need a new time cop. Of course, the only time cop that you can select in this situation is one Catherine Janeway. Uh, nothing, nothing like Braxton's nemesis to be the one to get Braxton, right? Well, you need a time cop. And if you were to pick Tuvok, you might unintentionally end up with a time detective. And <laughs> no, one, no one needs that. No one wants that. I certainly don't. Janeway's time in the time shift is my favorite part of the episode because she just is like, I... I just don't want to do this, right? Like she, she, she just has that look on her face, and everything about her delivery of her dialogue from this point forward is like, I cannot be wait to be out of this situation, right? Like this is this is just this is the bullshit I hate about being a space future person. Like this is awful, and I was there for it. Like it was the first time since like it's Janeway's supposed to hate time travel, like even though she for the first season kept doing it this is the first time where i actually buy the idea of like oh no 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 time shit i don't do time shit no time shit for me no that's other find other captain no fuck this so i I like that energy she was giving off she's so flippant she's so cheeky and it would have been so easy for this to have spoiled or derailed the tone of the episode but it all just works and and i'm there for it too and you know a lot of times voyager will try to do fun and it just comes off as stupid they really nail it here you know seven and nine's kind of functioning as the straight man to the comedy that janeway's bringing uh there's this plot line where so when they find out that braxton's the bad guy the uh the commander like pulls a uh, minority report and arrests Braxton for a pre-crime. <laughs> yes. And then they get one version of Braxton, but they have to go back and clean up more stuff. And he's like, well, for leniency, I'll just tell you the whole, you know, I'll give you the cheat codes to go back and get me. Cause I stumble over one of your dead crew members. <laughs> so you'll have an easy time apprehending me. So they get them, they get them locked up. But they're still not done yet because there's sloppy timeline antics and they need Janeway to go back and actually clean things up in addition to apprehending uh, Braxton. And, you know, it's it's cool. There was one part I do want to shout out in the beginning, which with uh, Admiral Patterson and uh, Janeway inspecting uh, the sick bay and they do the initial activation of the EMH. Which had some pretty good uh, Bob Picardo moments. In right. That, it's always but... interesting to contrast the season one EMH mode versus current EMH mode. And you got to see that like basically right next to each other in the episode. So that was neat. Yeah, I really liked the ending where like after he's, you know, I will say all of the uh, all of the kinetic moments in this episode are laughably bad. Right. Like that's the. The biggest meme here is that anything that involved physical contact or a fight of any kind is just done in the worst low energy way from the uh, like bursting in uh, into the mess hall to like Janeway ultimately getting Braxton because he like tripped over a dude. 
uh, like to like when and they initially confront future Braxton in the Jeffrey's tube and he's just like standing there with the thing just they don't do anything and he just teleports away like everything everyone is just like very lazy <laughs> in this episode when it comes to actual any kind of fighting it's it's yeah it's it's pretty funny and there at the end as well when everything's like wrapped up and Janeway's back on relativity and and the commander's like oh the temporal incursion factor of like 0.0001 that's better than i thought she's like great like that that's fine i guess i don't fucking know what you're talking about dude like like can i go home are we done am i done being your time cop hey space bodiker you want to go and see if that piece of hair in a jar is still there like come on man just let me off the hook here and uh you know they they explain like the reintegration in the timeline but they don't explain kind of gives you that hint of like why things work the way they do and he says well you never went to your future so i don't have to erase your memory but don't tell anybody about us bye <laughs> super sloppy but i can live with it it the the only real head scratcher here is again turning the blind eye to the doctor's hollow emitter everything else is you know fun and, and good uh great episode and that's not something we i don't know maybe it is something we frequently say for time travel episodes because i loved timeless i loved uh you're a hell that was great you're a hell you know so there's there's certainly some some great entries in there um fun guest stars great 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 special effects work and i can see why we had two boring ass duds before this someone to watch over me very budget friendly and i think uh you know the other goddamn one eleven fifty nine was just filmed in the fucking back lot so no no real budget there um they do a lot of cool stuff here but again the standout moment is that utopia planitia shot and knowing that that's like people putting in volunteer hours unpaid uh really really paid off well for audience enjoyment it's it's a fun episode you know like it's a fun episode of voyager that is still good star trek and there's enough also things about there's enough laughable things about it too to make it fun to to rib on like it's got it all it's got some comedy it's got some deep trek lore and it's got some stupid berman era bullshit all wrapped into one tasty package very good watch always enjoy this one but what are we watching next week peter we are going into season five episode 26 no 25 20 yeah 25 uh warhead and we see what looks like uh, the doctor and Harry Kim and in the far background it almost looks like Tuvix, but we know that can't be it. An alien missile that possesses artificial intelligence begins to terrorize the Voyager crew. Didn't we already do this episode? Was is this not juggernaut? Yeah. Juggernaut? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. What do you think the odds are that Belana Torres is going to have some odd interaction with it since she's like estranged robot mama number one? We'll find out together, sir. So, All right, man. Until then, see ya. <laughs>